If you're new here this morning, my name is Brent. I'm one of the leaders at Christ Central. We're certainly glad that you're here with us. They all file in from out there. For the last uh, few months, I guess, when I've been up here, we've been looking at Jesus' words from the cross, and uh, we'll continue with that this morning, and this will be the last one. Uh, So we'll finish things up this morning with looking at those things. Um, I uh, got here this morning, and Mark said, do you know where the news sheets are? And I went through my mind through the week and realized that I didn't do them. Uh, So you don't have any news sheets, but I do have a message prepared. So if we can have one or the other, that's probably the best way to go about it, right? So, I've really enjoyed uh, this series and, and spending some time focusing in on what Jesus said from the cross, and it's been encouraging and challenging to me, and I hope it has been to you as well. And we've looked at five sayings of Jesus from the cross, and this morning we'll look at the sixth thing that Jesus said just before he died, and as I said, this will wrap things up. Before we jump in to our verse, uh, you can turn in your Bibles to John 19. And as you're turning there, I just want to mention that this day, November 13th, is the fifth anniversary of the first time I ever preached at Christ Central Church. So, just like that, five years. November 13th, 2011, we were at Deneen Auditorium. I was working at Topmire Building Supplies, and uh, Joe and Gary and Kevin asked me to, to preach that morning, and I took Acts 17, and I expounded and applied the great doctrine of the sufficiency of God for 27 minutes (laughs) and five of that was an introduction from Joe and some stories about my family and some jokes so that I could calm down and not throw up (laughs) so anyways just to say it kind of hit me when I realized that and just to thank you guys for the opportunity and it's just been a great privilege to to stand up here and do this for five years and well done for putting up with my monotone voice Whoop! for five years. So I think I've gained a few tones since then. At least duotone, I would say, right? Is that? I don't know what happened. Okay. All right. So let's pray and we'll jump into John. 19. So, Father, we thank You that Your presence is here with us by Your Spirit. That's evident. We've seen that. We thank You for it. It's just an example of Your grace to us. Sinful as we are, You come and You presence Yourself with us. And we just praise You and give You all the glory for it. And we pray now as we come to Your Word, as we open up the Scriptures, we pray that Your Spirit would come and give us understanding. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. And we want to be changed Uh, We don't want to leave here the same people. We want to be changed as your Spirit works through the Word and change us and make us more like Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's turn to John 19. And we've been in this chapter for a few of the sayings of Jesus. We've had some from the other Gospels, but John 19 has a lot of them in it. Um, So we'll pick up at 28 
28. John 19, 28. So after this, so Jesus has been on the cross now for a few hours. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they look on him whom they have pierced. And I just want us to jump over, since it's the last one, and for six weeks we focused on Jesus' death. We just have to read these verses before we move on. John 20, 19. So our last image of Jesus, he's nailed to a cross. He's given up his spirit. He's pierced in his side. Blood and water flow out. And then we come to 2019. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. What would that have been like, eh? The last picture they had of Jesus, he was a bloody corpse nailed to a cross. And then he shows up in the room and says, Peace. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Amazing. We read it so much and we're so familiar with it. It's just amazing. Jesus rose again. Jesus rose again. So Luke, in his gospel, records what many scholars believe to be the last thing that Jesus said before he died, which was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We won't take a week looking at that, but that really shows us Jesus' sovereignty over the whole situation. So in some respects, the Jews killed Jesus. In other respects, it was God the Father who gave Jesus up to death. But still in other, other respects, no one killed Jesus, but he laid down his life willingly. And he says, Father, now into your hands I commit my spirit. He willingly handed over his life into the Father's hands. But, Jesus, but just before Jesus said those words, John gives us a little bit more insight. He records something that the other Gospels don't, maybe because he was right there at the foot of the cross, undistracted, whatever reason it was. Uh, but he tells us that as, John, as Jesus came to the end of his life, he said, it is finished. It is finished. And there are three words for us in English, uh, but in the Greek it's just one word. I don't usually do the whole in the Greek thing because I don't know Greek, so I feel like you should have probably spent a, some amount of time, a week at least, studying Greek so that you can say in the Greek. But for this verse at least, 
there's just a lot of impact here because in the Greek, it's just one word, tetelestai. Tetelestai. So Jesus is there, nailed to the cross, and he says, tetelestai. And many have commented how this one word from Jesus contained so much in it. Spurgeon said that tetelestai was an ocean of meaning in a drop of language. J.C. Ryle said it is surely not too much to say that of all the seven famous sayings of Christ on the cross, there is none more remarkable than tetelestai. And Charles Simeon, every word indeed that proceeded from our Savior's lips deserves the most attentive consideration but tetelestai eclipses all. To do justice to it is beyond the ability of men or angels. Its height and depth and length and breadth are absolutely unsearchable. So this morning, we're at the summit of Jesus' words on the cross, tetelestai, it is finished. So in thinking about this, uh, this one word from Jesus, and I was thinking how that would be received from everyone that was there in that scene on that day. And so for the disciples, Tetelestai would have been a word of great despair. This is the guy that they had followed, they had left their jobs for, they had seen his miracles, they had heard his teaching of great authority, and they were waiting for him to put the Romans in their place, usher in a new era for Israel, but now it is finished. A word of great despair. Tetelestai would have been a word of great sorrow for Mary. This was her son on the cross. This was her son. This was her miracle baby. And probably thoughts would have gone back through the years, back to all the firsts that parents experience with a new baby. First words, first steps, first time you lose your child in the temple because he's schooling the priests in their understanding of the Old Testament. All those normal firsts that we all experience. But her mind would have gone back through all those first, and this was her son on the cross. This was her child. And to hear him say, it is finished, would have been a word of great sorrow. For the Jews, to hear Jesus utter to Telestai from the cross would have been a word of great justice. There, he's dead. The blasphemer has got what he deserved. No one comes, says they're equal with God the Father, and just gets away with it. God has punished him. He is nailed to the cross, and it is finished. Justice has been served. For Pilate and the Roman soldiers, I imagine it would be a word of great relief. Finally, that's over with. The crowds can disperse. The noise can quiet down. We almost had a revolution on our hands, but now the revolter is done. It's done. He's been nailed. They're going to bury him. It's over. So to hear him say, it is finished, was probably a word of great relief for them. But today, us looking back, knowing how the story unfolds, we know that Tetelestai was a word of great victory. It was a word of great victory from Jesus' mouth. It was a triumphant declaration that he had done it. So he didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished, right? So the word tetelestai meant to execute, to complete, to end, to discharge a debt. So some scenarios that this would have been used in Jesus' day would be like if a servant went and did his job and he came back to his master, he would say, 
to Telestai, the work that you gave me, I have done, it is completed, I am back reporting, it is finished, it is complete. Or a merchant sta stamping a receipt to, te to say to Telestai, the debt has been paid in full. So for a first century Greek-speaking, checklist-loving person, to Telestai would be a word that they would have used often. That would be their favorite word, to Telestai, check the box, to Telestai, check the box. If there were iPhones back then, someone probably would create a wonderless productivity app and they would call it to Telestai, right? Jody would have used to Telestai all the time. First century Greek speaking Jody Dryza would just be like to Telestai, to Telestai, to Telestai, to Telestai, to Telestai. Write that one in to Telestai. <clears throat> I've checked all the boxes. Jesus on the cross is saying, I've checked all the boxes to Telestai. It is finished. So our first task, when we come to a verse like this, we need to find out what the it entails, right? He didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. And so our first question should be, what in the world is it? What was finished when Jesus died on the cross? What came to a conclusion? What reached a completion in Jesus? What boxes did Jesus check here? And so, although there are many things for the sake of of time this morning. We'll focus on five of those things. So first, uh, just before Jesus said, it is finished, in verse 28, it talks about everything being finished and Scripture being fulfilled. And so we see the meaning plain as day that when Jesus said it is finished, the whole Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, the law and the prophets, it all found its fulfillment in Him. Jesus said to the Jewish crowd in John 5, if you really believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. And in Matthew 5, he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. All the Old Testament types were pointing to him. He was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And we have that slide, guys. This is just a sampling of some of them, but there are a few. All the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah find their yes in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All the types in the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus. He didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. And when he said, it is finished on the cross, he was showing that he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. So when Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible, and if you don't have that and you have children eight and under, you should probably buy that. Um, when she was asked why she wrote her book, she said this. She said, so children could know what I didn't, that the Bible isn't mainly about me and what I should be doing. It's about God and what he has done, that the Bible is most of all a story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. That in spite of everything, no matter what, whatever it cost him, God won't ever stop loving his children with the wonderful, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That the Bible, in short, is a story, not a rule book, and that there is only one hero in the story. I wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible so children could meet the hero in its pages and become part of his magnificent story. Because rules don't change you, 
but a story, God's story, can. Second, the sacrificial system of the Jewish law was abolished. It was finished in Jesus. Hebrews 10 says this, Hebrews 10:11, under the old covenant the priest stand and minister, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again and again which can never take away sins. But our high priest, Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. And so the animal sacrifices are finished because Jesus fulfilled all that they were pointing toward. He became the final, once and for all, sacrifice. The priesthood is finished because now there is one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. The need of priests is finished because Jesus fulfilled their role in a greater way. He became the great high priest. And we read that when he died, the temple, uh, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And now he is our mediator between God and man. And the physical temple as a center for worship is finished because now Jesus is where we meet God. Jesus is now the center for worship. And we don't have to travel to Jerusalem. We don't have to travel to Mecca. We don't have to make a long trip. We don't have to look for the rebuilding of the temple because the time has come now when true worshipers won't worship in Jerusalem but will worship in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus finished the whole Jewish sacrificial system because it all found its fulfillment in Him. It is finished. Thirdly, Jesus discharged the debt of our sin. Jesus discharged the debt of our sin. The debt paying was accomplished. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, don't worry about that, that's another sermon, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And when Jesus cried out to Telestai, it is finished. He was declaring the sin debt between us and God, a debt so vast that we could never repay it, has been paid in full. Spurgeon said, listen to this, I just love this. If you've never read Spurgeon, he's quite, he's got this way, he just like constantly speaks in metaphors and it's wonderful. Anyway, Spurgeon said, sin nailed him to the cross, but in that deed, Christ nailed sin also to the tree. There they both did hang together, sin and sin's destroyer. Sin destroyed Christ And by that destruction, Christ destroyed sin. Sin and sin's destroyer both did hang together. The fourth thing that Jesus accomplished on the cross follows right after in Colossians 2. And after Paul tells us of Jesus nailing our sin debt to the cross, he says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So Jesus not only cancels the debt of our sin, he disarms Satan 
and his demons and their weapons to condemn. Our sins are forgiven. Our, our sin forgiven disarms Satan of his power to accuse. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Now what does this mean? How is Satan disarmed? And Hebrews says that Jesus' death on the cross uh, destroyed Satan. By his death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, the writer of Hebrews says. So how can this be? Because how do these things fit together? Because don't we read somewhere else where it says, be on alert because the devil's prowling around like a roaring lion, right? So we're talking about disarmed and destroy. How does all that fit together? How can Jesus on the cross look at Satan and his work and say, finished? Because our sin forgiven disarms Satan of his main tactic against us as Christians, which is his power to accuse, his power to condemn. It's a bit like this. I hate getting stung. I hate getting stung by a insect. And because of the attitude of others in our house towards spiders and bugs, not mentioning any names, I am the official bug killer <laughs> in our house. Okay? <laughs> now, truth be told, I sometimes resent that role. <laughs> but there are other times when I get a little too aggressive in that role. When I have hit a hornet or a spider a little more than necessary and just pummel him for upsetting the balance of peace in our house. <clears throat> but this past June, I was bested by the insect world. And I was asked to preach at a retreat at Sandy Cove Bible Camp by my friend Micah Hiltz. And we went up there and I preached on regeneration and God giving us new life in the deadness of our sin. Then I played ultimate frisbee with a bunch of 20-year-olds and thought God was going to have to resurrect me <laughs> on the field. But anyway, when I got in the car to leave, I was only in the car for a few minutes, and then I got this sharp, sharp pain in my ankle. And I was on the highway, and I tried to swat a bit, and I didn't feel anything. Um, but it was quite, quite painful. And by the time I got home, my ankle had all these red spots in it. And throughout the summer... Now, don't ask, why didn't you go and all this? But throughout the summer, occasionally my leg would swell up and was quite painful. So by about mid-August, I thought we should probably get this looked at. <laughs> Caleb and Tanisha's wedding was coming up. It was Wednesday. And so anyway, I went to the doctor, and they didn't really know what got me, but he said, something has got you, and that venom is in you. And uh, eventually it will just pass, and it did. I think we put a little cream on it. But anyway, I was able to do Caleb and Tanisha's wedding, although I did feel about, think about milking it a bit, because who wouldn't want to perform a wedding in a lazy boy, right? <laughs> be awesome. It'd be pretty cool. But the fascinating thing about insects is that most insects that sting wasps, hornets, bumblebees, they get you, and they leave, and you can't even get them. They're just in and out except for the honeybee. When the honeybee stings you, he puts his barbed uh, stinger in, and when he pulls out it, for the thick human skin, 
he can't get it back out. And so this is a little gross, but basically he rips the whole back of him off and he dies. <laughs> we'll just let it sink in for a while before we bring the application in, okay? And he leaves a bit of extra bits as well. And so shortly after stinging you, the honeybee dies. And in the same way, on the cross, Satan stung Jesus and he drained his venom of condemnation into him. And Jesus took it all down to the very last drop. And when Satan tried to leave and leave and squeal in delight, he was ripped. And his barb of condemnation was stung once, never to sting again. And not only is his death imminent because he was ripped in half by, the Je by Jesus' death on the cross, he is disarmed to come and condemn and accuse. And so, I told you, you just got to deal with the grossness to get the application. But this is why Paul says in Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Who died? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God forever, making intercession for you and me. The barb is stuck in Jesus. He drained the venom of condemnation. And now those of us who are in Christ, when Satan comes and tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. So that's why we can sing what a powerful name it is. What a powerful name it is. Lastly, Jesus' perfect obedience of his Father's will was now accomplished. Jesus said in John 8, 29, I always do what pleases him. And Paul says in Philippians 2, And being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was fully obedient to the holy plan of God. He said, I have come to do the will of the one who sent me. And he came and he perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He lived a righteous life absent of any and all sin. And now we, united to Christ, are made righteous and his righteousness is credited to us. God, or Jesus, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. So how can we sing that? Where did this righteousness come from? It came from the one who fulfilled the law of God, lived a perfectly obedient life to God, and then, even though he knew no sin, became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. So far, way far from being a cry of sorrow or of despair, far from being a sign of relief for the Jewish leaders, and Roman soldiers, to tell us I, it is finished, was a declaration of victory. It was a statement that all the Old Testament had been fulfilled in Jesus, that the sacrificial system had been fulfilled and abolished, uh, a statement that our record of sin, our sin debt against God, was nailed to the cross. It's like Jesus took 
the book of all your sin and your debt against God, and he held it in his hand with his hand behind it, and it was nailed to the cross. And he disarmed Satan from his power to condemn. And he fulfilled his perfect obedience to God his Father. Now one question to ask is what is finished? But we have another question as well, and that's what is beginning? And when Jesus cried out to Telestai, not only were there many things reaching their end in him, but there were things beginning as well. <clears throat> and it marked the beginning of two things for us. The first is rest. It marked the beginning of rest. And this is really a no-brainer because as we go through that list of all the things that ended with Jesus' words, it is finished. The sum of it all is rest for those who put their trust in Jesus. And so no wonder Jesus can say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Our debt has been paid for. Satan has been disarmed. The final sacrifice has been made and we can rest. We can rest from trying to work our way into favor with God because Jesus completed the work of salvation. He has done it. Every other religion in the world says do. Christianity says done. It is done. Jesus said it is finished. And so we can rest as we heard. We can rest from trying to do, do, do. And we don't have to, and, and really we cannot add to Jesus' saving work. While he was hanging on the cross, saving us, he said, it is finished. So Jesus, can I add my volunteering work? Can I add my good works to my neighbor? No, it is finished. Can I add my church attendance and my tithe and my Bible reading and my early morning devotions? No. It is finished. You are saved by Jesus' work alone on the cross. It is finished. Rest. Also, because Jesus said it is finished, we can rest knowing that God can use even the most horrible tragedy the world has ever known, the death of His Son, and turn it into the greatest event in history the salvation of many. So just because you might have grown up in the church, just because we're living on the other side of it and are able to look back on the crucifixion of Jesus with 2020 hindsight, don't lose sight of the fact that this was horrifying. This was horrifying. This is Jesus dying on a cross. The Son of God with nails through His hands and His feet writhing in pain on a rough wooden cross for hours. And we can see the beauty of it now, and we have songs to sing that help us to see the beauty of it, and we can have the full understanding looking back 2,000 years later, but if we were there in front of the cross, we would have thrown up. It was horrifying. And this is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the greatest tragedy in the history of mankind, and yet God uses it 
as the greatest blessing for mankind. In that seemingly disaster of a day, God was at work. And so we need to know this, church. We need to know this because we live in a world today that is so full of crazy. And we need to see that there has not been a day in history that is more tragic, that is more outrageous, that is more appalling, that is more confusing to those watching than the day that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was betrayed, arrested, tortured, mocked, whipped, nailed to a cross, and murdered. No event will surpass it. Not one. Not this past week, not this coming week, not ever. Yet even in that day while Jesus was being crucified, God was reigning. God was reigning. He was, even then, working all things together according to the counsel of His will. He was, even then, in the midst of all the confusion of His disciples, working all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So if God reigned then on that day, He reigns today. And no event in history, no matter what the headline is tomorrow, no matter what your news feed is filled with tomorrow, there is no event in history of mankind that will shake God off his throne because he reigned on that day when his son was crucified and he was using it for our good. And so there is no event in history where God does not reign. He reigns and we can rest. We can rest in that. He reigns. We can rest from working for our salvation and we can rest from the anxiety that any event will shake God off His throne. He reigns yesterday, today, and forever. One last application, one last thing that Jesus' words to Telestai, it is finished, began for us. When we hear Jesus' words, it is finished, we see that He died completing the work that God gave Him to do. He died completing the work that God gave Him to do. John 5, 36, Jesus said, For the works that the Father has given Me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about Me that the Father has sent Me. He came and accomplished the works that the Father sent Him to do. And at the end of His life, He said, it is finished. I've done it. So for us now, our call is simple. Finish the work that God has called you to do. Finish the work that God has called you to do. Don't shrink back. Don't cash it in halfway through. Finish the work. And so yes, Jesus' words give us rest and we can rest in our salvation. We can rest from working and working and working to earn good grace with God, to be in favor with God. But it's just the beginning. Now we can run. We can restfully run. We can restfully run in Jesus. They're like the pistol shot. It is finished. That mark the beginning of a race. And it's precisely that we can rest in Jesus' finished work on the cross for our salvation, that we can now run and give our lives for His sake.
So Paul says in Acts 20, 24, he says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And then in 2 Timothy 4, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Finish the work God has called you to do. Don't stop running. Don't stop running. We live our lives with half-read books and half-watched shows and uh, unfinished renovation projects, and our whole life has a, has a line of unfinished things. Don't let that be your walk with God. Run. Don't stop running. Say with Paul, I have finished the race. I don't account my life any value. I just want to finish what God has called me to do. I just want to finish. What has God called us to do? And maybe for some of you, after our week of prayer, after last Sunday, you've got a clearer vision of what God's called you to do. You've got a renewed uh, sense of direction, of what God has laid on your heart, and God wants to remind you this morning, don't stop until it's finished. It's easy in some respects to write on a card after an amazing time of worship and lots of people are praying, but there's going to be obstacles and there's going to be suffering and there's going to be setbacks and you're going to be tired. Don't stop running. Finish the work that God's called you to do. For others, maybe it's not that specific, but don't get caught up in the details and the outworkings. Don't stop running towards forgiveness to those around you. Don't stop running towards evangelism, praying for the sick, loving your neighbor. Don't stop running from sin and toward righteousness. Don't stop running toward loving your spouse and teaching and showing your children God's grace. Don't stop running. Finish what God has called you to do. No matter what obstacles you might encounter, no matter what suffering you might go through, no matter how strong the pull is to take a break, sit down. I feel that. Maybe I'm the only one. I feel it. I'm only 33. I've only really been a Christian for like 13 years of seriously following God. And already it's just like, oh, I'm tired. But don't stop running. Don't stop running. We want to finish the race. We want to say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have finished the race. And as we heard during worship, the pressure's off now, right? The pressure's off. So the, the part B of that is the pressure's off. Your salvation's secure. God's work of salvation is finished in Christ. The pressure's off. Now run. The pressure's off. Now run. Restfully run for Jesus into all that He has called you to. And we read these stories. Maybe you don't read them, but I do. You read stories of 
great men and women through church history like Hudson Taylor and Amy Carmichael, and you think, how did they do these amazing things for God? How did they do so much? How did they give so much of their life? But when you read through, there's a common theme. They all knew they rested in the finished work of Jesus, and then they ran. They ran. Hudson Taylor said that China, he started the China Inland Mission. He said, China will not be won for Christ by men and women of ease, but by those who are stamped with the love for China and the gospel and everything else, including their life, is secondary. And when you read his, his story of how he came to Christ, it was these words, it is finished, that the Spirit used to bring life in Hudson Taylor. He rested in his secure salvation of Jesus, and then he ran. He ran, and he finished the race that God had called him to do. So you might not be Hudson Taylor this morning. You might not go to China and, and see millions saved. But guess what? You can finish the race that God has called you to. You can finish the race that God has called you to. And that's what's most important. God has put a call on your life, and now you can finish the race. You can rest in your great salvation, and you can run. So Christ Central Church, run. Run. What has God called you to? What has God called us to as a church? We rest in our salvation. Our salvation is secure. It is unshakable in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And now we run. You're not alone. We're together. Christ Central Church, run. Finish the work that God has called us to do in this city and to the nations for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, that's just the desire of our heart. And our prayer is simple. We want to be confident in our salvation. We, we love that song you gave Angela. And we want to stare right in your eyes. We want to lock our gaze with you and know your great love for us as displayed through Jesus on the cross. And we want to hear those words from Jesus on the cross. It is finished. And all that entails. And we just want to rest in that. But we don't want to just be stationary in our resting. We want to be running. We want to be running towards the finish line. We want to be running towards you and all that you have for us. As we keep our eyes fixed on you, we know that one day we're physically going to look you in the eye. And you, we want to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your master. That's the cry of our heart. We want to be satisfied in you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.